We are continuing to make our way through the book of Numbers, and we're going to be in chapter 20 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and turn there, that'd be great. But if you don't have one, we also have the passage printed for you in the bulletin. But before we read the text, you know, all of us have either seen or heard or read of, um, maybe even experienced firsthand, a, a, a pastor or church leader, maybe in your community who got caught in some sin or who confessed some sin and it disqualified them from the ministry. And I remember there was a youth pastor in my hometown, I was growing up in, in youth group where that happened to him. That there can be confession, there can be repentance and turning back to God, but there are consequences to sin, especially in pastoral ministry that can be disqualifying. And the chapter that we are about to, about to read this morning has been called by some people one of the saddest and most tragic in the entire book of Numbers. And some even say that it's one of the most tragic in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is because in, in the span of one chapter, which takes place in about four months in the life of Israel, two out of the three most influential spiritual leaders in Israel who are at the very center of God's plan to redeem them and take them to the promised land will be dead. Miriam dies at the beginning of this chapter. We won't read it this morning, but Aaron will be dead by the end of the chapter. And the other, Moses, the central figure of the Exodus, of this period in salvation history, will be dead within the year. This is a tragic, it's a sad chapter. And the important thing to note in all of that is that they will die in the wilderness outside the promised land. And our text this morning tells us why. There are several themes that we could focus on, but here are a couple things that I wanna make sure that we see this morning. Is that I want us to see the seriousness of sin. That's gonna become apparent in this passage, that God's holiness, his perfection demands that sin be dealt with. But I also want to look at the sufficiency of the Savior, that God provides what his people most need. Then I want us to look at the necessity of faith. And here's the thing. I don't want to talk about faith in some abstract sense because that wouldn't be helpful to anyone, right? I want to talk about faith in that space where the rubber meets the road in our life. The kind of faith that trusts God even in the hard places when we're tired and angry and frustrated, we're at the end of ourselves. Because as we'll see, just like the people of Israel, our greatest danger as we journey through this life, which feels like a desert much of the time, is not some disease or disaster or detour or disappointment, not even death. But our greatest danger is falling into unbelief. Is that our hearts get hardened. Those dangers are real and they are present, but they are not our greatest danger. That God can still be trusted when those things come. And if you live long enough, right, they will come. Especially for believers but to believe that he is for us, that he is with us, that he is helping us trust him more precisely in those moments. And what we'll see in this text, similar to what we saw last week, is that unbelief, 
the lack of faith manifests itself in different ways and in different sins. So we're going to see in our text this morning that it can reveal itself in grumbling and complaining and quarreling, which we can be experts at, right? It can also surface in anger and frustration. But the deeper issue, the heart issue that gives rise to the sin is a functional failure to trust in God, especially in those moments when we are between a rock and a hard place. So let me, read, let me read this passage and then we'll jump in. This is Numbers chapter 20, verses one through 13. This is God's word. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, hear now you rebels, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them, he showed himself holy. This is God's word, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. God, we need your help this morning. We pray that you would come by your spirit, soften our hearts to hear your word. Give us faith, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever experienced deja vu? You know what I'm talking about? It's one of those inexplicable things, right? You can't, you can't really explain it at all. It's like, you know you've seen this before. You've been here before. You've lived this before, even though you know you haven't. That's kind of what it's like reading the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. There's lots of rebelling. There's lots of grumbling, It's like on repeat throughout those books. But there are also lots of God's great and merciful acts of salvation. And our passage this morning is no different. Now here's how I wanna approach the the text this morning. These are my main points. First, I want us to consider the setting of when and where this takes place in the story of the people of Israel. Then I wanna look at the sin. 
And I want us to think about it in terms of rebellion because that's what it's called in other places. And I'm, I want us to look both at the, the sin of the congregation as well as that of their ministers, Moses and Aaron. And what we're gonna see is that both of those are a result of unbelief. And then the last thing that I want us to consider is the savior. So that's where we're headed this morning. So the setting. Every week as we look at these individual stories in the book of Numbers, it's important that we don't lose sight of the main plot to remember where all of this is headed. And that's not only true as we read the Bible or read any other literature, but it's also true for life, that sometimes we are so fixated on the next step that we're taking in life that we forget where we're going. So it's important that we make sure we zoom out a little bit and consider the setting of what's going on here. Now, there's a lot, obviously, that could be said, but let me try to mention just a few of the big things. If you've been here these past several weeks, you've noticed that we're not covering every single chapter and verse in this book. But all the events in Numbers take place in the wilderness. And specifically, they take place in the desert between Egypt, where the people of God are in slavery under Pharaoh, and the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to give them as an inheritance. Now, if, you, if, you, if you've been in church much, you'll remember that way back in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he tells him that he's gonna have a son and he's gonna have descendants as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. And he's gonna give them a land for an inheritance. But before all of that, they're gonna be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God will not forget his promise. He'll come and he'll deliver them out of their slavery and he will bring them into that land. But that wasn't the most important thing of the covenant. That wasn't the high mark. The greatest news of all is that God would be their God and that they would be his people, that he would dwell in the midst of them. But that raises a very critical question that these first few books and the rest of the Bible seek to answer. And it's this, how can an infinitely holy and righteous and perfect God dwell in the midst of an unholy and sinful people? And so beginning in Exodus chapter 19 with the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord resting on that mountain, all throughout the rest of that book and throughout the book of Leviticus in the beginning of Numbers, God, through Moses, gives the people of Israel his law. That just like with Abraham, relationship would be possible through faith. A faith that would result in a life of glad-hearted obedience to God. And when they sinned, which they would often do, another had to die so that they wouldn't because God's holiness demanded it. But what we quickly learn in reading these books is that Israel consistently fails to trust God and obey his word. They rebel, they complain, they grumble time and again. And it comes to a head in Numbers chapter 14, which is the scene of the greatest rebellion of all. Let me get a little, little teach you a little nerdy for a second. In the book of Numbers, there are seven rebellions in the book of Numbers. And it forms a chiasm. And, and, the, and the one in the middle, the fourth one, is what happens in Numbers 14. It's highlighted that this is the scene of Israel's greatest rebellion. So what happens there? We're on the southern border of Canaan, about to go into the land and take it over. And they send out 12 spies, one spy from each 
of the 12 tribes of Israel to scout out the land. You probably know the story if you've been in church. They come back with good news, right? The good news is that the land flows with milk and honey. It's a good land. There's abundant food. But then comes the bad news. That they, they say that there are giants living there, that their cities are well fortified. The people are strong. And the Bible tells us that all of Israel, except for Caleb and Joshua, who are among the 12, 12 spies, that all of Israel say, there's, there's no way that we are going there. We're gonna go there to die. They don't have faith in God to fulfill the promise that he had made to them centuries before. And so, because of their unbelief to trust God to keep the promise, the covenant that he made with them, God sentences them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for each day, the spies are in the land until everyone in that generation who came out of Egypt, 20 years and older at the time of the the census at the beginning of the book, until everyone is dead except for Caleb and Joshua. Now, I mention all of that because it provides part of the setting, the backstory for our passage in chapter 20. So fast forward now to the 40th year in the wilderness. That's, where, that's when this takes place, in the 40th year, which means most of the first generation who came out of Egypt, who saw the plagues, crossed the Red Sea, most of them are now dead. So these are their kids. So, so that's, that's the setting. That's where we are. And chapter 20 starts at the last leg of Israel's journey in the wilderness. So by the time you get to chapter 22, they're gonna be at the the doorstep of the land of Canaan, about to cross over. And here they've come to a place called Kadesh. And there's no water there for them to drink. Which is gonna be remarkably similar to an account back in Exodus 17 that we'll talk about here in a few minutes. So the question is, how will they respond to this a situation that they have been in before. And, and, and here's the thing. What we find is that for this being the Old Testament, which seems very far removed from, from our day, from our lives, what we're going to find is that this is incredibly relevant to our lives today. Their situation may be different, but our hearts are not that different. In fact, they are the same. So that's, that's the setting. What about the sin or the rebellion, as it's called? Elsewhere, I think it's a good way for us to think about it. I want to look first at the sin of the congregation, but even, even more than just looking at the sin and observing that, I want us to get up underneath the, the sin to see what's actually producing it. And we're going to find that it's, it's really a lack of faith in God. So in, in verse 2, there's no water for the congregation, and it says that they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses. Again, if, if you're at all familiar <clears throat> with the story of Israel, even with what Brian preached last week, this is so typical of them. Like this, this isn't original to them. This isn't the first time God's people quarrel and rebel against the leaders that God's put over them. This isn't the first time they're going to rebel against God. I heard, a, I heard a pastor recently say that Israel's two most frequent activities in the wilderness were complaining and burying. That grumbling is no small thing to God. And we're going to see that play out here in this passage. 
And I want, us, I want us to slow down long enough to hear what they say because it not only provides a window into their hearts, it also provides one into ours. What do they say? Verse 3 says, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now, this is crazy to think about, but they're, they're, they're likely referring back to what happened earlier in chapter 16 when once again there's a rebellion against Moses and Aaron's leadership, just like there is here. And God sends a plague that kills almost 15,000 of them. Brian mentioned it last week. So when they say here that they wish they had perished by a plague on sin, against sin, it reveals a lot about where they are spiritually. They clearly don't trust God to provide for them, even though, think of it, for the past 40 years, quite literally, God has provided for their every need, every step of the way. He's given them food to eat and water to drink every day for the past 40 years, but they are not believing that he can or that he will this time. For them, death sounded a lot better than having to spend another day in this wilderness tired and thirsty. If we're, being honest, if we're being honest, that may be where some of you are right now with whatever it is you are facing because they believe that their story was going to end in misery, not in mercy. Because listen to what they say, what their complaint is in verses four through five. It's twofold. And we've heard this before from them. Verse four, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here? Both we and our cattle. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. Which that last part there is almost an identical description of the report the spies give back in chapter 13 of the promised land. So let me mention just a couple of things here. First, here's here's a really important question that we need to ask. Who led them to that place in the wilderness where there's no water? That's an important question to ask. Was it Moses who led them there? Because they're pointing their finger at him. They're blaming him for their situation. They're looking to him for leadership. But who's the complaint really against? Who do they ultimately have a quarrel with? Look down at verse 13. It provides a lot of insight. It says, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And Brian highlighted this last week. Their complaint wasn't ultimately against Moses. Their complaint was really with God. What they were really taking issue with is how he was leading them. Because remember, it was God who led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So Moses was just following God's leadership. And they may have had an issue with his leadership. But ultimately, They lacked faith in God and his leadership, that he would take care of them and provide for them, that he had brought them there to that place precisely to show them that. That they would but look to him in faith. They simply don't believe. And their unbelief manifests itself in quarreling and complaining. As we take a step back for a minute and we think about our own lives, What's our posture when we come to a dry land and the situation is hard and we feel desperate? Don't know where to turn next. 
Are we all that different from them? Is our posture one of faith and trust that God's going to provide what we most need when we need it most? That he'll continue to be faithful to us every step we take in this wilderness. Because he's been faithful to us so many times before. That he's led us to this very place so that we might grow to trust him more. Or are we quick to say that it must be that God doesn't really care about me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. Or maybe that he's withholding some good thing from me or he's powerless to do anything or he simply doesn't exist. Are we quick to blame others for our circumstances? Because what what this passage shows us and other passages like it, they help us to see that our complaining, the vast majority of our complaining is ultimately against God. That he's the one we really have an issue with. And it's because we simply do not trust him. And let me be quick to say that we should go to God with our complaints and with our doubts. And we should go to him. Just read the book of Psalms. They are full of this kind of thing. But the question is, is our complaining grounded in belief and born out in prayer? Or like Israel, does it just reveal our unbelief? Because here's the thing. Our faith is put to the test when our circumstances don't line up with our expectation of God, who we think he is, or what we think he has promised us. Which leads to the the second thing I want to mention here. Is that, notice that God's people love to bring up Egypt. Constantly bring it. Wishing they were... Back in Egypt, like it was so great back there that they would rather be in Egypt with Pharaoh than in the wilderness with God. Do you see that? It's really dangerous and really deadly, but that is what unbelief does. It's the same for you and me. The temptation is as soon as things get hard in the Christian life, when our situation doesn't align with who we think God is or what we think he has promised, to believe that we are better off before he delivered us, that we think we are better off on our own, are we not so quick to forget how miserable our situation was? And are we not so quick to forget how great a salvation we have been given And we start thinking that God has abandoned us in this desert full of disease and broken relationships and disappointments and bills and all the rest. And just like the people of Israel, we can begin to think that the wilderness should be the promised land. That this earth, this life should be more like heaven. And if we're not careful, we can start believing the lie that what God has promised us is a stress-free, struggle-free, suffering-free life. That's what the so-called prosperity gospel preaches. They're getting rich off of it. But that's not what the Bible preaches. The Bible teaches us that God is taking us to the promised land, but we are not there yet. He's told us that the journey will have hills and valleys and trials, testing of our faith. But he has promised to provide all we need along the way because he is right there in the midst of us in that wilderness. 
And so we have good reason to trust in him. So that's a little window into the congregation, to the people here. Their failure to trust God is giving rise to sin and rebellion, to quarreling and complaining about their situation. But they're not the only ones rebelling here in this passage. What about the sin of Moses and Aaron, the ministers? This is really the most tragic part. Now, this is a guess, but I'm going to assume that you have someone in your life, maybe a person in your family, maybe the person sitting right next to you this morning, maybe at work, who know the buttons to push in your life, who can really get under your skin. And they know what I'm talking about, right? We can get under each other's skin. Now, think, think think of this for a second. Moses and Aaron have been leading this group of people for 40 years now, and this is like the umpteenth rebellion. So you can get a sense of where Moses and Aaron are right here. Feeling a little tired of this. And the thing is, things begin well. Look at, starting at verse 6, Moses and Aaron do what they always do when the people rebel. When they don't know what to do, they go, it says, to the tent of meeting. They fall on their faces before God. It says, the glory of the Lord appeared to them, which clues us in on God's readiness to act on their behalf. I mentioned just a few minutes ago that this account is really similar to one back in Exodus 17. During the first year in the wilderness. In both accounts, they come to a place where there's no water. Both times they quarrel with Moses. Both times they ask why they were brought up out of Egypt. And both times Moses is told to take the staff, use it to bring water out of the rock. But the major difference between those two accounts, and it's a striking one, comes in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, saying, verse 8, take the staff. I think this is Moses' staff here, not Aaron's that budded that we looked at last week. The reasons for believing that we won't get into right now. Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And that's where Moses' obedience is going to stop. And he's not going to act in faith and obey God's command here. He's going to rebel. And he's going to do it publicly. And it's clear from the context that he is angry and he is frustrated, both with the people. He's tired of their rebellion, which is somewhat understandable, but it's not excusable, right? But he's also angry with God. In Exodus 17, he's told to strike the rock with his staff. Here he's told only to speak to it. And that's going to be important, that, that the very words would bring forth the water. But instead of speaking to the rock, he's going to go off on the rebels and sin against God. And ironically, what it's going to reveal is that his own heart is rebellious and unbelieving, just like the congregation that he's fed up with. Look at verses 10 and 11. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels. You already get a sense of where things are headed. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And again, just like we saw a minute ago, who's ultimately the one who's about to give them water to drink? Is it Moses and Aaron here, or is it God? So you already get a sense of what's happening in this passage. Moses isn't trusting here. 
And from the context, it's likely because he doesn't believe God should be merciful to them. That God shouldn't be gracious. They're a bunch of rebels. They're rebelling against his leadership. They're rebelling against God's leadership. He thinks they should be judged for their rebellion and lack of faith, not saved and delivered. And then verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. I don't want us to lose sight of the miracle here in the midst of all this rebellion because this is an act of salvation. God mercifully and miraculously provides water for his people even though they don't deserve it. What they deserve is judgment. But it wasn't going to fall on them this time. It was going to fall on Moses and Aaron. And, you know, this, is, this text has, has caused a lot of problems for some people. So I want to I be quick to say here that what, what's going on here, th- this isn't Moses and Aaron being condemned to hell for their sin. That's not what's going on here. This is the ministers being prevented from continuing their ministry. Their ministry is going to be cut short because of their sin. So I I want to be clear on that. This isn't them being condemned to hell. But verse 12 is one of, the, one of the saddest verses in the entire book. Because you do not believe in me, the Lord says, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, we could spend a, a lot of time on that verse alone. It could be a much longer sermon than it already is. But let me mention just a few things about that. Because this, this is Moses and Aaron's sin. But it's also a window into our own sin. First, Notice that God doesn't say, Moses, because you got angry or because you lost your temper. Right now, if you're a parent in this room or maybe a teacher uh, or have spent any amount of time with kids whatsoever, you're going you're to get this. Like, there is a literally a rebellion in my home every single day with our two-year-old. Like, there's, there's a mini rebellion happening every single day with our two-year-old. We tell her to do something, she doesn't do it. We tell her not to do something, she does it. She's constantly being disobedient. We're trying to teach her obedience. But her getting upset and angry at our command is not the real issue. There's something going on at the heart level. We've got to speak to the heart. And so God here in what's happening with Moses goes right to the heart issue that is giving rise to his disobedience, to his sin. He tells them, you did not believe in me. The real issue is a lack of faith. You didn't trust in my power, my mercy, my goodness. You didn't take me at my word. You didn't treat me as holy. And it's because you have an unbelieving and rebellious heart. And brothers and sisters, that is true of you and me today. But the main reason we disobey, the main reason we go against God's command, the reason we, we sin is simply because we lack faith in God. And it could be because we believe that he's withholding some good thing from us. It could be that we don't believe he can provide for our needs or he's all that satisfying. It could be that we just don't believe in him or that he's all that satisfying or his holiness is not that great. But at the end of the day, it is simply because we don't trust God, especially in those moments in our lives when we think we could do a better job at running things 
than he can. That was true in the life of Israel, in the life of Moses, but it's also true for us. The second thing that this verse highlights very clearly is the seriousness of sin. And they will die in the wilderness. Their ministry will be cut short. And the reason is because God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely holy. And our sin is an affront to his holiness and must be dealt with. If Moses and Aaron had acted in faith here, if they had followed God's command, they would have magnified, they would have made much of God through their obedience. But when unholy people approach a holy God, what happens? God will show himself to be holy. Either by delayed judgment, which is what's going on here, or by immediate judgment. We see that in the book of Numbers. People die on the spot for approaching God in their uncleanness, in their sin. Because here's the thing. Like Brian said last week, we should be amazed that there is not a plague happening all the time. But it is a mercy that we all are not dead at the moment. So like the rest of the first generation of Israel, the judgment on Moses and Aaron is the same. They won't enter the promised land because of unbelief. It's an incredibly tragic story, but it's not hopeless. As I was thinking about this this past week in preparation, I couldn't help but coming back to the fact that this is Moses and Aaron that we're talking about here. This is like the dream team of Israelites. These men were at the very center of what God was doing in salvation history for his people. From the plagues back in Egypt to the crossing of the Red Sea, to all the different miracles, to intercede on behalf of the people countless times. These men were at the very center of it. They were among the holiest in all of Israel. Think about it. Moses, in all the Old Testament, there was never a prophet like Moses whom God spoke to face to face as with a friend, not in riddles, but in clear language. Moses who beheld his glory. And then Aaron who was the first high priest who once a year on the day of atonement went behind the veil into the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people so that a holy God could dwell in the midst of them But what we see here is that like the rest of Israel, they too were rebels at heart. That they too lacked faith. Which really illustrates this very crucial point for us. Is that there are none righteous. That all fall short of the glory of God. That we are all rebels before him. We all sin against his holiness. None of us deserve heaven. We all deserve hell. And that includes those in the congregation, and that includes those in pastoral leadership. Moses could not give the the people the rest that they longed for. He couldn't give them the inheritance that God had promised them. He couldn't give them water so that they would never thirst again, because his condition was the very same as theirs, and the same as yours and mine. We are all rebels who lack faith in God, and it leaves us longing for someone else. It leaves us longing for a greater prophet, a greater priest, a greater provider, which leads us to the third and last point, the Savior. Because Jesus is in this passage, and I want us to see him. 
I've mentioned a few times now, this story mirrors Exodus 17. Both accounts are of God providing water from a rock, the act of salvation. But what's significant about the rock? Right? It seems strange to us. Water from a rock? In the Old Testament, sometimes God is referred to as a rock. But it symbolized his presence, and his provision for his people. And we see that most clearly in the Exodus passage that this mirrors. Let me read a couple of verses, verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 17. This will become clearer. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now get this. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Did you catch that? In other words, what what God was telling Moses there, he said, I'm going to stand on the rock, and I want you to strike me, and when you do, I'm going to give life-giving water for the people. Like what one commentator said there, he says, The Lord allowed himself to be put on trial standing before Israel instead of putting them on trial for their complaining. And that awesome picture of grace, the Lord was willing to be struck himself instead of his rebellious people so that they might receive life-giving water. Which sheds even more light on the seriousness of the sin of Moses and Aaron here and the punishment as a result of it. It was as if Moses had raised his hand, clenched his fist, sinning with a high hand, as Numbers 15 talks about, and striking God himself. But we know that God will only be struck once and never again. Do you see how this is pointing us to Jesus? That he is the rock here in this text, saving his unfaithful and rebellious people. And we know that is true precisely because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 when he's talking about this generation. He says, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. When we zoom the camera out, and we look at the whole Bible, we see the connection, right? That it was Jesus who was struck once for our salvation, who was beaten that he might provide us with living water that will quench our thirst for all eternity if we but trust in him. You see, Israel's physical need was meant to point them to their greater spiritual need that could only be satisfied by God alone. And the same is true for you and me. And so Jesus... In John chapter 7, which is what our assurance was this morning, Jesus says there, if anyone thirsts, like Israel that day, or maybe like you this morning, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then if you remember, he's talking to the Samaritan woman back in John 4. He says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him. And he would give you water to drink if you ask him. 
living water that would well up in you to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am the rock who can give you the water of life. Ask me, believe in me, trust in me, and you will never thirst again. And he offers it to rebellious and unbelieving people like you and me. And it is the greatest miracle of all. Let me, let me end like this this morning. Are you thirsty today? I think you know what I mean by that question. That's a question for the Christian and for the non-Christian here this morning, those who don't yet believe. Are you in a dry land where there is no water, like Israel was that day? What is the setting of your life? What situation are you facing? Are you tired and frustrated? Are you struggling to believe that God loves you and is for you? Are you struggling to see the goodness of his word? Are you struggling to believe that he has brought you to this very place, that he hasn't abandoned you, but he wants you to trust him? Do you find yourself complaining and grumbling? Do you find yourself rebelling and disbelieving? Let this passage serve as a warning for us that sin is serious. We shouldn't play around with it. And faith is necessary, that our greatest danger in the Christian life is unbelief. But let it also stir up your faith in God, because he means for it to. That the Savior stands ready to give you what you most desperately need. That he is, brothers and sisters, supremely sufficient. That he is the one who upheld the holiness of God through his life of perfect obedience and faith, taking your sin and rebellion upon himself, dying in your place, absorbing God's wrath so that you would and so that you could be reconciled to a holy God. He's the greater and more faithful Moses. He's the greater Aaron who is taking us into the true promised land. He is the rock who was struck so that you can have living water to quench your thirsty soul. So whatever it is you are facing, as you walk through this wilderness of life, be it cancer or criticism, be it unemployment or unfulfilled desires, death or discouragement, keep trusting in the Savior. Keep asking the rock to quench your thirst. Keep trusting in the one who is taking you home to be with him forever. And pray like crazy. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Because it helps us to see ourselves. And it helps us to see you. God, we are not that different from Israel. We are quick to grumble, complain, quarrel. Because we don't trust you. You're working for our good. God, we we are quick to disobey your word. To go off on our own, to sin against you. We don't treat your holiness as we ought. And yet, God, in Christ Jesus, you've come in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin, and provided for us life-giving water that quenches our thirsty souls. And so, Father, I pray for all of us.
that we would look to you, whatever we are facing this morning, we would look to you as the source of our greatest good, that you would satisfy us with yourself. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our rock. Amen.